Hello, and welcome to Beyond Digital, a B4B podcast brought to you by DMI. In this podcast, we move beyond the transactional B2B conversation and focus on B4B storytelling. We dive into the unique journeys of industry disruptors, change makers, and the thought leaders that are driving transformation through a new model, one based on shared value and ecosystem mindset in the convergence of business and technology. We discuss all things digital evolution, from optimizing technology and transforming business models to innovating at the edge. Join us as we retrace the footsteps of these leaders, hear about their successes and challenges as we move beyond digital together. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Beyond Digital. I'm your host, Adam Kleschinski, and we're joined today by our guests, John Heverin and DMI's very own Andy Brockett. John is the Executive Vice President and Chief Information Officer of Global Risk Solutions for Liberty Mutual Insurance. Founded in 1912, Liberty Mutual now operates in over 30 countries around the world with over 50,000 employees and 800 offices. Andy is the Senior Director of Digital Innovation at DMI. Over the past 11 years, he's worn many hats. He helped grow our Microsoft Dynamics practice into one of the best in the Midwest and is currently considered one of DMI's most valuable creative thinkers. Today, they'll be discussing all things past, present, and future of technology in the insurance industry, from the early days of SAP to the front line of cloud computing, machine learning, and IoT. I'd like to get this, our very first episode of Beyond Digital, underway by asking both of you to give our listeners some insight into your backgrounds, where your tech journeys began, and what brought you to your present roles. With that, Andy, I'll hand the mic over to you to answer that question and and get us started. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate that. So my journey has actually taken me from the business world into the technology world. So I've, for all intents and purposes, have watched those two worlds converge. I actually graduated from Indiana University's Kelly School of Business with a finance degree and started out in the banking industry and found myself 20 years ago looking to make a career shift over into the technology space and did that with a startup here in Indianapolis focused on providing solutions to banking and asset management companies. Over the last 20 years, I've really worn many hats, as Adam mentioned earlier, but across many different organizations both in the software provider side, but also in the consulting side. During that time, I've had an opportunity to really understand what are driving our clients' needs and wants and opportunities, but also watching technology evolve and change overnight. With that being said, I guess the the biggest thing I've seen today as I look at my past experience is the opportunity for us to really see how businesses are able to continue to be client-obsessed and focus on their clients while building solutions and delivering technology capabilities that meet those demands. And so as we look back over that 20-year history, it's easy for me to see that every one of those stops along the way with each of my clients, the number one priority was focusing on the client and taking care of their client first, and then finding the solutions and technologies that help enable them. John, that's my story. Now let's hear yours. Well, great. Well, thanks, Andy. It's a real pleasure to be here. Feels like it's been a while since when I first got started. So early, you know, I guess my journey with technology goes all the way back to college. When I was in college, I was 
trying to figure out what I wanted to focus on. And I did some work in mathematics and computer science along with business. I ended up settling on journalism and technical communications. So I did things like write a newsletter for the local mainframe operation on campus. So that was my introduction to technology at the time. This is, you know, back when desktop publishing and the Apple Mac was was all the rage. So it's it's been a while. After graduating from the University of Florida, go Gators, I entered banking. And I knew when I left school that somehow, I wasn't sure how, I loved the idea of business. I was very fascinated with business. I had spent part of my college career in economics and marketing, but I also really enjoyed technology. And so when I was working at the bank as a credit analyst or an underwriter, as we might call it today, I ended up taking on special projects like setting up their first wide area network, building a system to track loan renewals and those types of things in kind of my spare time. So after a few years, when I decided to go back to business school, I knew somehow I wanted to find a way to have business and technology both together playing a role. So after business school and spending some time abroad, I started for a chemical company based in Philadelphia. And this was an interesting start because it was a they were hiring MBA students into their technology program. They were trying to add more business savvy into the technology side of it. And that's how I got started. And I ended up working there for several years and then spending over a decade in telecommunications and now in insurance, all the while kind of bringing these ideas of how do you solve business problems with technology? So I've seen a lot from the, the first Macintosh, uh, you know, desktop printer to artificial intelligence, which is what we're dealing with these days. John, I'm curious to understand what it was like when you first started in the industry. It'd be great if you could tell us a little more about your background, where you got your start, and some of the key disruptors that were impacting the market. Yeah, so after business school, worked for a company called Roman Haas, which did chemical manufacturing and was involved in a big ERP project. And so at the time, back at that point, there was still very much, this would have been the early to mid 90s, when there was still very much kind of a a bifurcation between the computing that took place on the desktop with whether it was Macs or PCs were were in their full form at that point, or in that mid-range and mainframe space. And so we were implementing what a software package, which later was purchased and was part of SAP today, of doing an ERP system. So managing all of the business and planning and operational aspects of chemical manufacturing from order to delivery, everything outside the actual systems that run in plant systems. And what I found was interesting was just how that was the start of, there was a lot of focus on whether it was mainframe or mid-range and integrating systems, but the desktop was still very much kind of apart. What I did see in those early days was this idea around data, of how do we take data out of these large systems and bring them down to the desktop at the time to put them into spreadsheets where you can do more detailed on-the-fly you know, analysis. That was the early days of some of the you know, business intelligence tools, which by comparison to what what you get today with with the technology, you know, it does look pretty outdated. But that idea of how do you unlock these larger, more monolithic systems, and in particular the data, to get those insights directly to 
managers, whether that's managers that are supply managers looking to optimize, you know, how often the, at that point the company was purchasing and, and refilling kettles and tanks uh, across the entire ecosystem. So it was, a, it was an interesting time. Of course, now a lot of that is much more seamless and, and integrated, but at the time it was pretty discreet. I want to go back and double click on something you mentioned earlier. You said you had a journalism degree and then later received your MBA. Did you find that it was an advantage for you to enter the industry with a non-technical degree? If so, what types of advantages did you see? I did. I did. And I think I, I credit a lot of that with the success that I have had over the years. Being able to communicate, and it's more than just being able to communicate in, you know, in written form or verbal form, but being able to really kind of connect with people and communicate, being able to, I think one of the things I learned in journalism is, you know, journalism at its core is about listening and then asking the right questions to kind of tell a story. And I think there's a lot of parallels to technology, especially all types of technology, especially corporate technology. It is about really a deeper level of listening to what your business partners or you know, people that are using these products on the front line, what are they really saying? A lot of times what I have seen over the years is when they know you're in technology, they'll try and answer you with the answer. Like they'll try and kind of guess at like what you think they think you want to know. And it really is getting past that. And I think the the, the process of journalism, of asking questions of, attacking a problem from a number of angles, you know, really you see it in product management today. A good product manager, you know, could easily come from a journalism background or some kind of, you know, non-technical background because it's about being inherently curious about what the work is that needs to get done or what the problem that needs to be solved and really embracing that from the customer's point of view versus their experience or point of view. That's interesting, John. So, Looking back now, was there a technology or product that was ahead of its time when it was released? If so, how did you see it change the market? I think I probably would go back to the Mac and the desktop publishing. You know, back what would have been in 1985, 86, the Macintosh really owned the desktop publishing market. And it was, you know, the fact that it was even called desktop publishing, this idea that you would have a high quality printer and a computer that you could do high quality graphics and word processing. I think it was, you know, it was it was very, very transformational at the time because it put everything you needed to do. In, in our case, it was generating a, a newsletter, but it was everything you needed to do, you had control over. Whereas at the time when the IBM PC was coming out, it was very much more utilitarian. It was about if you need to do math, then you have this spreadsheet. If you need to do word processing, it was just the basics with WordPerfect or whatever it was at the time. And you didn't have access to high quality desktop printer, a laser printer at the time. So I think what we saw there was that start of the consumerization of technology and empowering the end user to control their own destiny when it comes to technology. Shifting gears, let's take a look at today. What are you responsible for? What are you asking your team to deliver for the organization? Are there any disruptors that are impacting the work that you're performing? I'm just curious to understand kind of where things sit today. 
Yeah. So today I sit within Liberty. I'm responsible for all the technology that supports our global risk solutions business, as, as Sunny mentioned. And that really is anything from a mid-sized company all the way up to global behemoths. And it runs the gamut of you know standard property and casualty insurance products like workers' compensation or auto or property to oh, literally dozens and dozens of specialty products, whether that's directors and officers or a lot more esoteric stuff. We operate on the Lloyd's market, which is a market that's for very kind of often very unique and specialized or very hard, large, complex risks, reinsurance or surety business. Anytime you see someone building a building or a bridge or a school, there's a surety bond behind that to, to guarantee the completion. So it's a big, global, complex business. I'm responsible for all the technology and leading those teams that do that. We operate on a global basis. We have resources in the United States and London and in a number of other countries. And I would say what's interesting about it, you know, I have a dual reporting relationship. I report to the business unit CEO and also our enterprise CIO, which I love because I think that continues to be my split world to the business and to the technology. And, you know, in some ways it hasn't changed, it's changed a lot in terms of the specifics of what we're doing, but in, in, in many ways, it's still the basics of how do you tackle business problems and new business challenges in the best, most efficient way with technology. So in terms of disruptors, the disruptors, the labels on them have changed, but a lot of the, the disruptors are the same. How do you do things faster, more flexible? at a better price point. I think fundamentally, one of the biggest disruptors that we face today is cloud computing. The likes of Amazon Web Services or AWS or Azure, Google Cloud, et cetera. The idea that all you really need, you know, and I'll tell this to teams all the time, this is a fascinating time to be in technology. If you have a good idea, and if you have the passion and gumption to kind of teach yourself the technology, literally you can do everything yourself. You can go online, you can learn any language, you can learn anything you need to know about technology. And with a credit card, you can get access to the world's leading computing capabilities with AWS or, or the like. And so when I first started, you know, the idea is, you would have to, especially from a computing standpoint, you'd have to make significant upfront investments. You know, you'd have to buy servers, you'd have to buy software in order to, you know, you'd spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars upfront on an idea, and then hopefully it panned out. Where today you can start and you can start renting that, you know, at a second fraction of a time. And I do think that that changes what we can do. And we're avid, my group is a we have over half, almost closing in on 60% of our computing is done in the public cloud today. So we've embraced that several years ago and we're we're kind of all in. I think any modern enterprise that isn't is missing out. And if you're if you're listening to this and you're going, well, we can't we can't be in the public cloud because it's not safe or it's not secure or it's not robust or won't scale, I would just beg you to do a little bit more research and learning because I guarantee you. It can do all those things and it is safe and secure. And I used to say this, you know, more often, but 
your customers will do their business in the cloud, whether that's with you or your new competitor that's going to spring up, that's where it will take place. And so you want to get there first versus it does provide a, a, a robust environment to be kind of have startups compete with you or compete with more often you'll see it compete with different parts of your value chain. It's interesting you mentioned that because we are seeing more and more disruptors enter the market who are by nature, both lean and agile. Fintechs that are typically starting by focusing on a specific business problem and are able to attack it very quickly since they're digital natives. They see that opportunity to disrupt your business and, and before you know it, they're starting to penetrate your client base. I guess with that being said, Earlier, you mentioned the dual reporting relationship with the CEO and within the IT organization. Given that shift, have you seen any changes in how product is being delivered and how product innovation is taking place within your organization? Yeah, we started our, we've been on an agile journey for five years now. So it's been a while. That was the start of changing how we as an IT organization viewed how we do work. We work very closely with our business partners to change how they think about doing work on their expectations of what solving business problems with technology means, how to experiment, how to do things iteratively. And that's required a lot of shifting of mindsets on both sides and blurring the idea that there's even a side. And so now most of our teams are, they include members from the business and from the technology side seamlessly. Where we're now focused on is that idea of true product management. So we kind of went down the, let's make sure everything is, is, is agile and iterative. And we embraced product owners from the get-go. We had those roles formalized in our structures and involved, but now really kind of getting that next level into, into true product management where you have product managers that own you know, a business piece of the value chain end to end. Um, we're well down our path to an API first architecture. We've embraced microservices and serverless and a bunch of these other kind of technologies, but now really going even further and trying to look at everything as a service, as an API, and, you know, much the same way that AWS got started and, and Amazon embraced, you know, many years ago. Just that that flexibility and the nimbleness that that can create. It's hard to start up, right? Because again, it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of, of solving problems. But what we see is as teams do that and they embrace it, it changes their expectations of themselves and what they think is possible. Hey guys, Adam here again. If we could press pause for one second. A couple of things that I just heard, I think are actually a, a really great segue into something that Sonny had discussed with me, wanting to make sure that we underlined during this particular podcast. You know, John, you just mentioned several different things beyond just the technical level, more on the thought leadership and culture side of things where you, you look at changing the way that folks think and solve problems. And that when individuals are able to change their expectations of themselves, they're also then able to rethink what's actually possible. And it's really evident that that same sort of mantra really does flow across your community and kind of everything you touch. We, we know that you're a family man and you're heavily involved in your community in the Boston area. 
before we shift to the innovation side of this discussion, can we can we take a moment to hear a little bit more about what you do personally in your area there to provide the same level of thought leadership and support? Yeah, you bet. I have been fortunate to be involved with an organization called Boston Partners in Education. It is a nonprofit organization that provides mentoring and other support services to students and teachers in schools in the Boston public school system. Uh, I've been on their board for five plus years. In fact, you know, DMI has been a sponsor, a contributor, and a supporter. And I know, you know, Sonny, you personally have been have been a fantastic supporter of the organization. It really is, you know, a unique set of people that bring together volunteers from all across the community. And this past year has been tough, right, with everything being virtual. But again, people have responded. Our uptake on mentors has been more than even in the physical world as students, you know, have asked for more help, teachers have asked for more help. So, Sonny, as you know, in in May, early May, we're going to have our annual gala. It'll still be virtual this year because of the pandemic, but it celebrates all the accomplishments. And this year, we're honoring Melissa McDonnell, who is the president of the Liberty Foundation. The Liberty Mutual Foundation is our nonprofit organization that supports all types of Nonprofits all throughout not only the United States, but even the globe. It runs our service campaigns where we volunteer a service once a year. And so Melissa, as president of that foundation, will be honored. And so it's just it's just great. And it just shows the with the foundation how Liberty is kind of committed to the communities they operate in. And you know, I'm proud to be associated with Boston Partners in Education. All right, John, let's we're shifting gears on you here. We're moving to the lightning round. As you look at the future, industries are blurring and disruption is all around us. What trends do you see impacting the insurance industry in the next decade? Ultimately, who knows? I think key things that are going to impact us, artificial intelligence, machine learning. We inherently are a prediction-based company and industry. AI and machine learning are nothing more than machine-driven predictions. So I think that's a huge thing. Data capturing, leveraging more and more data is key. And you'll see more and more of that happening. I think the other thing we've talked about the internet of things for a long time, I think we'll see in the next you know decade or so or more IOT leveraging, you know, that, you know, whether that's devices capturing information off of containers and container ships across the, you know, the sea that are insured or other industrial situations. I think visual systems is another, it's a specialized form of artificial intelligence. I think you'll see visual systems. So if you think about work environments, whether that's construction sites, industrial sites, warehouses, being able to have cameras give advice to people on how to protect themselves from lifting, how to protect themselves from other dangers, how to warn, how to watch for injuries, you know, it helps to protect our clients and it helps to prevent losses. Finally, I think, you know, mobility is going to just become more and more and the cloud's going to power it all. Another question, John. So you have a son that's getting ready to finish college. If you have a piece of wisdom that you could share with high school and college students today that you wish you would have had shared with you while you were in school, what would it be? Let's just maybe call it the wisdom of John. I'd say never stop learning. The, the idea that when you when you finish school, 
you know, you're done with learning. It's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but all you've learned hopefully is how to learn. And so keep learning. That's the key. I mean, that's why when it comes down to me, you know, the key things for me that I tell people over and over again, be curious, be empathetic and listen, right? Those are three great words that all of our audience can benefit from. One last question. What book is currently on your desk or nightstand that you would recommend or are looking forward to reading? So my, my kind of all-time favorite is Daniel Pink's Drive. I think it's great for leaders, especially in technology, but leaders of any kind in terms of how to motivate and inspire people. But I actually got a book recently from some friends called Empowered by Marty Kagan and Chris Jones, which is literally on my desk here from, you know, you all had sent this to me. So that is going to be my next, my next read. So I, I have not read his latest book, but it couldn't have come at, at a better time because it's, you know, that idea of product management is, is key to what we're doing right now. Yeah, that is a great book. I just finished reading Empowered myself and will not play the part of the spoiler. But in all seriousness, if you want to join on a virtual book club, uh, we'd certainly be open to doing that with you. Now, I'd like to hand it back over to Sonny. Thank you again, John, for all of your time today. Terrific. Well, thank you for the time and thanks for uh, an engaging dialogue. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Beyond Digital by DMI. If you like what you heard, please like and share with your colleagues on social media and subscribe to Beyond Digital on your favorite platform. To hear more stories around intelligent digital transformation, visit us at dminc.com, where you can view the show notes from this and other episodes. We're grateful for your support as we navigate beyond digital transformation and build the B4B conversation together. Until next time, this is Sonny Bajaj, founder and CEO of DMI, wishing you all the best. Stay digital and stay transformed.